Hey everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of People Are Wild. My name is Kim, and I am your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host here this week to round out the organ donation discussion that has been going on for the past two episodes. Now, I alluded to this a little bit earlier in the previous episode about calling in some reinforcements regarding doing some myth-busting with the organ donation process. And I found one of the best resources directly from Donate Life from my home state of Arizona. So I hope you guys enjoyed this very special, informative, and educational medutainment and full effect episode of People Are Wild. And just as a general disclaimer, the audio in the first little bit kind of gets a little bit wonky, but it does even out for the most part for the rest of the episode. So apologies in advance, technology. You love it, you hate it, you gotta use it. For the past couple of episodes, I have profiled people who have received the gift of life via an organ transplant. And that has no doubt left some of you with questions. And I figured what better way to kind of not necessarily close out the topic, because this is not a topic that should ever be necessarily closed out, but why not address some of the myths and the facts and and do the best that I can with breaking through some of the misinformation that is unfortunately out there about organ donation and tissue donation. But I can't do this alone. I definitely have to call in some backup from the fantastic representative uh, from Donate Life. Today, I'm very fortunate to have with me uh, Nico Santos from the Arizona chapter of Donate Life. Um, Thanks for joining me today, Nico. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, yes, we're uh, calling in from Donor Network of Arizona, which is a Donate Life. And uh, Nico, how did you get involved with Donate Life? This is always something that, so I, I travel for work and because I work in the ER um, and just the hospital in general, I should say, but definitely with the more critical care area, we're involved with various chapters of Donate Life. When I travel from state to state, I've they all have their own specific names and they're different chapters, but I'm always kind of intrigued by how people go into that. Like, how how do you find yourself working there? Yeah, I think intriguing is the right way to put it because I've never met anyone, and I'm sure you'll say the same, who said, you grew up, I, I want to be an organ donation. No one ever says that, right? It's not kind of one of those careers that we think about, like, oh, that's what I need to be when I grow up, you know, doctor, president, lawyer, organ donation. It doesn't happen like that, and, and that's okay. Um, so it was kind of a unique route, a career path, if you will, for me. Because before I started with Donor Network of Arizona, uh, a little bit more than two years ago now, uh, in my past life was a reporter. So I worked uh, both behind the scenes and on camera telling stories for different local news stations in California and Arizona. I, my last stop before coming to Donor Network of Arizona was the NBC affiliate here in Phoenix, Arizona. And there were two things that stood out to me. Uh, one, I had some former coworkers who kind of did the same migration I did and came to organ donation, and they just said that they were floored by how great the organization is, the work is fulfilling, saving lives, we meet amazing people. And I, as a reporter, had done some stories about organ, eye, and tissue donation, and they stuck with me because it's such a compelling story when you hear about someone who passes away, often suddenly, often tragically, and it could easily be the end of the story, you know, they died, we missed them, or they died, however, they saved this many people through organ donation, they healed even more people through tissue donation, they restored sight for two, three, or four people uh, through cornea donation. 
And it's just always profound. I've never heard a story that didn't at least give me chills or I cry at least once a week here at work in the best way possible. So while it wasn't something I, it wasn't my plan A, we could say, it has definitely been, I haven't looked back. Let's just put it that way. Well, it's always incredible to me, the people who work within organ donation and facilitate so much of what goes on behind the scenes. In my role as a nurse in the ER, I am on one side of the the phone call, essentially, and then it gets taken to a whole different level. So I'm actually really excited to to talk to you today because I get to know personally, I guess in a selfish way, I get to know what happens after my role is essentially completed um, and then, and what you guys do after that. So I think the best way, though, maybe to kind of start this off is to do a little bit of a knowledge bomb, uh, some truth, truth knowledge going on here about some of the facts behind organ and tissue donation. And I mean, that in and of itself is, is two different things. When people think about being an organ donor, I don't know if they realize there are different components within that in terms of organ donation and tissue donation. So I wanted to kind of get some facts out there uh, coming from some of the various transplant organizations out there that uh, have compiled these really kind of mind-blowing facts. So we can start off with one of the biggest ones, and that is almost 100,000 people, actually over 100,000 people in the United States of America alone are currently on the waiting list for a life-saving organ transplant. And um, I know at least here, I'm in the Southeast right now and where I'm at, I don't necessarily like to say particularly where I'm at, uh, but in the Southeast, I know a majority of those people are waiting for a kidney donation. With that as well, is it's estimated that another name is added to the National Transplant Waiting List about every 10 minutes. On average, 20 people die every day from the lack of available organs for transplant. And one deceased donor can save up to eight lives through organ donation alone and can save and enhance more than 100 lives through the life-saving and healing gift of tissue donation. Now, this is taken directly from the uh, American Transplant Foundation facts and figures, which there will be a link to that in the show notes for sure. But I kind of wanted to sort of give people this mental picture about just how far the gift of donating organs can go. I was just saying, when you said specifically on the tissue donation front, you were mentioning 100. uh, It reminded me of a donor mother who has since become a Donate Life Arizona volunteer with us. It was her son, unfortunately, after complications with diabetes, passed away. But through tissue alone, he had 101 recipients, and it was across the entire country. So obviously, that was a profound impact for her. and, and a useful detail to help in the grief and in the pain after having lost her son, but she's so proud that he was able to do such a thing. And, and we can get into more details uh, when you wish, but tissue, we're talking about even uh, bones, ligaments, skin tissue, uh, pericardium, which is a membrane around the heart, heart valves. Uh, I'm probably missing a lot of them, but there's so many different tissues uh, that you can donate and really heal people, restore mobility, uh, can be used for dental work, severe burns. The, the list goes on and on and on with what exactly uh, uh, medical professionals can do with donated tissue, for sure. Right. So I think that's a perfect time to talk about it. Um, when we talk about organ transplant, we're talking about organs that can be donated after death. And 
there is also that living donor component, which is its own little subset as well. Um, but talking about organs that can be do- donated after death, those would be the heart, liver, kidneys, lungs, pancreas, and even small intestine. You don't hear a lot about the small intestine one. Um, I don't hear about it too much, but it can actually be donated after death. And then when we talk about tissue donation, that includes corneas, uh, skin, veins, heart valves, tendons, ligaments, bones, vertebral bodies, so many things that people are waiting for to, like you say, restore mobility. Um, you talk about burn victims. Uh, you talk about people who've had different things happen and, and all of a sudden, you know, they get a corneal transplant and they can see it again. Um, in fact, the cornea is the most commonly transplanted tissue and more than 400, sorry, 40,000 corneal transplants take place each year in the United States. So if you think about that, that's a lot of people who are giving people the gift of sight again, or at least restoring impaired vision. And I, I mean, it's incredible that not only has science been able to make that a possibility, but that people have said, yes, I, I want this for myself or somebody else. Um, and I'm, I'm always blown away by that because People who decide to be an organ donor, in my mind, because I work in healthcare, I think maybe I'm a little bit more biased. But to me, it's it's a no brainer to be an organ donor, to make that decision to help somebody else out when your body is done because of everything that goes through in terms of the checks. And we'll get into that in a little bit about um, what can be used and, and the way that we determine what can be used. But to me, I'm like, well, it's a no brainer. If, if I have a, a strong heart and, you know, I die or when I die, it's still strong. Then yes, I want that to help somebody else out. But I think it's incredible that you can even do tissue. So maybe you can't necessarily do the whole organ of the heart, but you have good heart valves. You have ligaments or tendons that can help somebody. Um, and that can prolong their life. I think that's an incredible thing too. And I think. People don't know that tissue donation is just as beautiful of a gift as a major organ donation can be as well. Absolutely. And sometimes uh, we say life enhancing or life healing uh, transplants when we talk about tissue donation. But a lot of the time, even tissue donation is life saving. If you have a failing heart valve, you could pass away from the complications. So if you get a heart, heart valve transplant, that essentially saves your life. And that's still on the tissue front. So it is a huge deal. We, uh, sometimes it doesn't get as much notoriety, right? Nor enough uh, attention on the tissue front, but it really is a huge deal. Well, and the other thing too, I, I, we're going to have some different terminology too while we're talking about this. So people, people just, I feel like should know from the beginning, we don't harvest organs. That's, that's something that I, I hope people, they understand that is not a term that we associate with the gift of organ donation um, because it is a gift. So there are different terms that are used. We do organ recovery. Um, we talk about sometimes organ procurement, but I like the term recovery. I think that's a little bit more appropriate, honestly, because you are, you are essentially giving that gift to somebody else. You know, you're, you're involved in their recovery of, of sorts. So, um, you'll, you'll hear us probably use those types of terms, um, interchangeably throughout this discussion. So don't think that we're not saying words like harvest. We're not saying them because that's not what happens. So that's why we don't say it. When we have volunteer training, for example, or if we bring guests in, kind of an easy way to think about it is we harvest crops, we recover organs. Yep. We harvest plants. 
I want people to really know about that because we are going to talk about some of the myths. Um, one of them we could delve into is uh, the buying and selling of human organs is not allowed for transplants in America, but it is allowed for research purposes. So people, I don't know why, but I, I, maybe they, maybe they've seen Black Mirror. I don't know, <laughs> um, but I feel like people think that we sell organs in healthcare or between um, organizations that people we just do that. Like doctors just take organs and they sell them. I don't know. I know sometimes some people have asked me that and I've been blown away that that's out there in the community. So, so nobody is profiting off of illegally selling organs. Um, and I laugh because to me it's comical, but, um, I want that to be understood. First and foremost, we are not selling, we are not buying organs. Um, the gift of life is completely voluntary. Nobody is coerced. Nobody is incentivized by it per se with monetary things. Um, it is a right. selfless altruistic decision that a person makes and it is completely 100% voluntary. Exactly. And so the, what we have to tell people about that is particularly speaking for donor network of Arizona, that our work, our job, right, our vocation even is to fulfill that life saving and life healing mission of organ tissue and cornea keyword donation. Right, so obviously there's money involved. Um, we have to pay for supplies. We pay for the location that we're at. Um, we have to pay any of the medical experts involved for their services related to the organ donation. But we are not buying or selling organs. It is very against the law in all 50 states and Puerto Rico. So while there's money involved, just like any other healthcare procedure or process, you go to a hospital or a clinic, that's a part of it. But there's no price tag. In fact, I think it would be impossible, right? Life is priceless. So no, I'm glad that you brought that up. We don't buy or sell. Right. And the other thing, too, about that in terms of the money, yes, obviously, you know, this is a this is a procedure. So there is it is a medical thing. So, yes, there is that side of um, this is a surgery. But on the other side of things, too, when people talk about the, the actual waiting list for organ transplants, they think that, you know, people can buy their way to the top. and that is a very outdated notion too that you know I think we should address that the way that people are placed onto the waiting list are mostly it's somewhat in a vague way it's what the medical need is in terms of the organ that that is needed um the location of that person and compatibility so you can have somebody on that waiting list who is middle aged who gets that call and you know, they they go to their the to the hospital and they get everything done and they're receiving the heart of somebody in their late teens or twenties. So it's it's not a you can't buy your way to the top. Um, I feel like people think that that's something. I think that's maybe portrayed in Hollywood um, that people can do that, but that is not what happens when you're on the waiting list. Um, it's very much regional based and medical need in terms of what what organ you need, um, and, you know, your compatibility. So that's what really determines it, I think, right? That's that's my understanding. Yeah, yeah you got the right notion there. So the, it comes down to someone who is in organ failure, who has to be sick enough to require an organ transplant, but healthy enough to be able to go under surgery, right? Because at the end of the day, it's costs versus benefits, risk versus benefits, I should say, here. Uh, when you're going under surgery, any kind of surgical procedure, all there's always a possibility of death. So the patient 
or potential recipient, the waiting list patient candidate has to be healthy enough to be able to undergo that. But beyond that, as you were mentioning, particularly, you can't know you can't buy your way to the top. I don't know the differences between healthcare, but there's no uh, preferential treatment based on which uh, coverage you use, or if you're on Medicare or here in Arizona, we have access. Um, it is it really comes down to the need. The the responsibilities throughout this the whole process of organ donation from uh, recovery to transplantation is segmented as well. So there's a national organization called UNOS for short. It stands for United Network for Organ Sharing. And that organization is responsible for setting the regulations that are used in a computer system and an algorithm that determines who matches this uh, donor who uh, recently passed away and then determines who it's going to go to. So it's a computer system that's to really take out any emotional influences to take out any preferential treatment or even the illusion of conflict of interest because it's a computer deciding who gets the next organ. Right. And I guess it'd be a good time to kind of go into what happens. So I, like I said, I have had to call, um, donate life uh, according to which state I'm in a handful of times. I've, I've called them enough times that I'm somewhat familiar with what I have to do on the side of things. So um, I'm going to kind of explain to everybody listening what happens, at least from the emergency room side. It's a little bit different sometimes with intensive care units, um, and we'll talk about that too. But we have people who come in, and there is a resuscitation effort in process. And that person does not survive that. The outcome is that they are deceased. And the first thing that we do is call the local Donate Life. Um, and the reason we do that, I wouldn't say necessarily before all else, but it is the first thing that we actually have to do. Um, time is tissue. It's a big thing in healthcare. In many ways, time is tissue when you have a heart attack. The more time that you delay getting interventions, it's not a great outcome. Same thing that happens if you're concerned about a stroke. The time that you delay getting interventions, it's not the greatest outcomes. But when we're talking about organ donation, you're thinking about the fact that you have people who are on ventilators, who are on different outside machines that are helping to sustain their organs. And that can only happen for so long. Although this is the cool part is that technology has gotten really, really advanced with actually extending the lifespan of these organs, which is really cool. And I kind of geek out over that. So I have to draw myself back in. <laughs> um, but, but it is. It's time is tissue. Um, there's a certain amount of time that these organs are, are viable, can be recovered and uh, safely transplanted to a recipient. So that's the first thing that we have to do. That's actually in a lot of the um, paperwork that we have to fill out for various places. And the first thing, though, that we have to do is call the local Donate Life donor network. And that basically, that phone call is essentially our first contact with uh, donate life. And we are telling them about this patient, trying to tell them as much identifying information as we can. So this goes back now to people. If you have on your driver's license and you have the heart on there that says you're a registered organ donor, that's awesome. By the way, that's so cool. But that's not something when we're looking at IDs on people, we're not looking at that and saying, Oh, this person's an organ donor. Let's stop doing CPR. That has never been something that has ever been said in any ER anywhere or during any sort of code situation anywhere. When we're looking at your identification, we actually are able to talk to you as the person. You know, if, if your name is John Smith, we now have a name for you um, and we can 
talk to you. And I know some people think it's odd, but I mean, they say, you know, that hearing is one of the last things to go. And so try and just talk to people because I have actually had people who have woken up out of the ICU and have recovered and have come back with another family member who's gotten sick. And they've been like, I remember things. I remember hearing things. We talk to people and we say, you know, this is Dave Smith. You know, this is what we're doing and everything. But when we get that license and we see that heart, it, it doesn't mean that we stop our efforts. We don't stop our efforts until we have exhausted everything into that person. When a person's time of death is called, everything has been done. We have considered everything. Uh, we have looked at every sort of scenario in terms of what can we do for an intervention. And when the body is exhausted and we have done all that we can, we have to be judicious in saying that there's, this is the time of death. So when we call that, when the doctor calls that, when the physician says we're stopping all efforts and time of death is this and this, our, our counter is essentially there's another sort of counter that has started at that point. And we call Donate Life and, you know, we give them that rundown. And sometimes if they do have their ID, they're able to look them up. Um, and the cool thing is when you're a registered organ donor, and I encourage this to everybody out there, go on to your local Donate Life and you can actually customize, I believe, right? You can customize what you would feel comfortable with donating uh, organ and tissue wise. Every state has its own registry, as you mentioned. Uh, just because the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, which is the law that allows organ donations to happen, is is done state by state. So there's little tweaks, there's differences here and there. Uh, as far as Arizona goes, though, that is correct. You can create a profile uh, if you're living in Arizona on donatelifeaz.org. And, and you can customize. So for whatever reason, if I want to donate everything, I don't know, except for my pancreas, what happened, just hypothetical, right? You can uncheck that. And that will be part of your registry. It will be noted in what's called a, a document of gift. And we will honor that. Sure. Right. And when they actually are able to access that and they access the registry and we tell them about this person, they can see that. So some people, you know, they, whatever their preferences are, you can customize it to that. So that's my role is I, I start that process. Essentially, we call Donate Life and we're essentially telling them, hey, we have somebody over here who is deceased um, or who is on life support and has to meet certain criteria and we can sort of step it through forward in terms of the next steps. Um, at least in the ER, depending on what's happened to the person, sometimes that limits what can be used in terms of organ donation. However, one of the first things that happens for people that we do is if we know that a person, you know, we've extubated them or if something's happened and it's pretty traumatic in terms of an injury or, or something to that effect where their major organs have been compromised, we still can have uh, a discussion about tissue donation. So one of the first things we always do, at least in a lot of the ERs I've worked at, is to keep people's eyes moist so that if there is a potential for a corneal transplant, we don't necessarily uh, compromise that by delaying. So again, time is tissue. So that's one of the first things we'll do even before sometimes somebody calls donate life is just to make sure that we're keeping things as preserved as we can that could be viable for tissue donation. So that's something that I've grown accustomed to, which I never thought I would. But I mean, I, I know that there's a need for it. And that's one thing we do. Um, and actually, it is in some of the flow sheets that we work through in terms of what you have to do after a person is deceased in the ER 
is like one of the things on there is like, make sure that, you know, you're keeping their eyes moist. Um, if they're on ventilators, you know, when you talk to donate live, tell them, because sometimes you have people who come in who are stable, but they're, they're on a ventilator. So they're on a machine that helps them to breathe or they're on another sort of machine that helps with maintaining their blood flow and all this other stuff that goes into it. We, we still have the call donate life. If there's a potential for that person to be a donor. So when I say that, uh, we're going to switch it over to more intensive care. If a person isn't an organ donor or they're a John Doe, we don't necessarily have like an ID on them. They don't have next of kin with them. And they're on a ventilator. We, we call. And the reason we call is because there's also, it's not just a person is on a breathing machine and they're unconscious and they're sedated. It's also because there's a, a major neurological event in terms of they're not going to recover from it. So if a person has a major stroke, if they have a brain bleed, if they have been a drowning victim, especially in Arizona, and they've been deprived of oxygen for such a long amount of time, the brain suffers for that. And you can't, at least right now, we can't replace that. Um, so if you sustain a major brain injury and you're intubated and you're on, you know, that breathing machine, we call and we're talking to them and saying, you know, this is what's going on with my patient. I don't necessarily know if they're on the registry or anything, but I need to make you aware. And you do. You actually need to make Donate Life aware. Um, it's not something you can bypass because they have to reach out to the next of kin. So you're working with them, too, with seeing if you can establish somebody, power of attorney, next of kin, somebody that you guys can talk to and approach. And I don't know what happens after that. Like I said, I'm I make those first phone calls. There's a couple of follow-ups sometimes for clarification on some things, especially if we get an ID after the fact. And then I just know that sometimes like a few months later, I'll get a letter in my inbox or a card that says something along the lines of, you know, that patient went on to donate their organs and it's impacted such and such person in the community. And I have a couple of those letters and I keep them in like a really my safe box because it just, it's amazing that people have made that choice. But I don't know necessarily what happens after I make that phone call. So yeah, the phone call that you were referring to is a referral phone call. And as at least as it works in Arizona, since Donor Network of Arizona is the federally designated organ procurement organization, uh, all hospitals are in the state are required, as you mentioned, to make that referral phone call within the hour of any in-hospital death or ahead of a death if, as you mentioned, that patient meets certain uh, clinical triggers as it relates to some kind of brain injury. Roughly, at least in Arizona, 60% of our donors become donors after a doctor has declared them brain dead. Uh, that's just one of the main paths to donation. While a hospital may make a referral before someone technically passes away, uh, we are not allowed to contact the family until that declaration is made because we don't want to be in any way an influence on the decision because it's very personal. It's, you know, assuming that the person who passed away wasn't already registered, the next of kin is in a really dark space. They just lost someone they love probably quickly, probably suddenly, and then they have to make this decision. Are we going to say yes to donation? So we know that's very difficult, um, but we have to make it very clear that we're not here to influence the decision. We're just here to allow it to happen if there's a yes. Uh, the, the heart on the ID, in some states it's a dot. There's, a, there's different designations based on the state. Most states I do know that have a donor heart, much like 
Arizona. That happens when you go to the DMV here in Arizona. It's the MVD. And you say, yes, I want to be a donor. And they print it on there. However, for people listening, if a medical professional were to see that, it's not a, the, you know, the end all be all, the, or there's a heart on this idea that means this person is a donor. You know, assuming we have that evil doctor, which we can talk about in depth, because that, that, that's not true. That's a major myth. But regardless of what's on the ID or what my family members may suspect, that's why the referral call is necessary because I could have gone back to the MBD and, and gotten and said yes or excuse me, gone to the MVD, said yes, I want to be a donor, and then later called the OPO, or us in this case, Donor Network of Arizona, said, you know what, I changed my mind, please remove my information. That takes about 10 minutes, it's a super easy process. But they still may have the heart on their ID, so that's more or less a symbol of the relationship that we have with the motor vehicles division, and we love it because it's a conversation starter, but we still have to check the registry before we proceed. So after you make that referral call, there's a, a... the dedicated department for very talented, very brave uh, employees that we have here at Donor Network of Arizona, they are uh, donation and family advocates. That's what their official titles are. Because there's a family discussion, right, and it can kind of go down two paths. Uh, our main goal is to offer support to the family, and that includes a discussion about either explaining what the process of donation for transplantation looks like and will be like and how long it will take, uh, at least with estimates, assuming that the person who passed away was already a previously registered donor. If not, then the conversation goes down a different path to learn more about the person, to get to know the family, and to better understand what organ donation and tissue donation means for that person and does it align with their values. So, of course, we want to save lives. There's 112,000 people in the, in the United States, just short of 2,000 people in Arizona who are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. So we want to save lives. But at the end of the day, it is up to that person or their next of kin, and we respect either answer. Uh, a lot of times it's a no, and we, we have to respect that because it is a legal decision. Assuming the person was registered or the family authorizes organ and tissue donation, then the matching process starts. Um, that is something that happens both at some transplant centers as well as here at Oregon uh, or, or Network of Arizona. We have an HLA lab, and it's a really funky uh, human leukocyte antigen lab. Basically, at the end of the day, that is just the main testing to make sure, you know, blood type and organ size and how many antigens are in this person. And there's so many factors that have to line up in order to match uh, your future recipient. At that time, there's a process of what's known as a social medical history. It is a bit lengthy, and uh, that's another a bit of a burden that the family has to go through asking, answering questions so that we can better understand uh, risks associated with the donation because any medical procedure has its risks. And before we proceed, we want to know what they are, if any. There's also uh, a number of tests done for diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C, neither of which rule out donation. Now, fun fact, because uh, every region in the U.S. has already performed an HIV-positive donor to HIV-positive recipient donation. And there's actually even been, I'm not mistaken, at least two HIV-positive living donors. So that's uh, one myth. If you have HIV, do not rule yourself out. We understand, you know, as the medications and technologies improve for people living with HIV and AIDS, that they could still be considered healthy enough when, as a living donor or when they pass away to save someone else's life. On the hep C front, hep C 
while not fun, right? Uh, it is curable. It takes a few months. So, uh, and, but this, this kind of information the recipient wouldn't get, and they have the opportunity to say, no, I don't feel comfortable taking you know, this liver from a person who was infected with HIV. But the reality is, if you accept an infected liver, you're going to survive, and then you'll get the treatment to rid your body of hepatitis C, and you're suddenly healthy and, and living a fulfilling life again. So keep that in mind. Um, so once the testing is done and the matching process starts, um, the next would be recovery, as we mentioned. Uh, for your, your listeners, it's not organ harvesting. We recover organs. And that happens, I think this is kind of a fun fact, because people, I feel like, it's a very foggy realm, organ donation for a lot of people, even for me before I started here. So uh, I totally get that. But organ recovery happens in an OR just like any other surgical procedure. And the donor, while they may be passed away, is treated with respect throughout the entire process because it's still a surgical procedure, and we have medical professionals who are doing this. Uh, and respect and honoring to, to the point that we ask the family if they would like to write any words to be read before organ recovery happens. Our team, as well as some of the transplant surgeons who are involved in recovery, will hold a moment of silence to honor that donor because they're saving lives. Um, sometimes they, if a family member mentions like a favorite band or favorite song, you'll hear them playing that in the OR while recovery takes place. Anything that we can do to just really have that energy of humble energy, right, of honoring this generous decision to save other people when this person could no longer be saved. Um, after that, then it becomes a little bit more technical with the transportation of organs. Sometimes it's by on the street. Sometimes it's by uh, airplane. Sometimes by private charter. It just depends on the organ. For example, a heart is really fragile. So from recovery to transplantation, it's about four hours. But while recovery is happening, the recipient is already being prepped, ideally somewhere nearby. If not within the state of Arizona, then it would be within the region of California, New Mexico, for example. Um, these things happen quickly. It's really a miracle every single day that all these moving parts happen to get the organs to, to the recipients that are, that are really in need. And then from there, once all the recovery has happened, you know, keeping on that theme of respect for the donor, then there's a restorative process. So people wonder, oh, can I have an open casket funeral if that's what your funeral arrangements are? Yes, absolutely. The people who visit you, unless they are told before your funeral, wouldn't even know that organ or tissue recovery happened. That's how much respect that we have for the donors. We want everything that they decided, including their funeral arrangements, to go exactly as they chose. And so there is that restorative process so that it is able to have an open casket if that's what were the wishes of the donor, the decision that the donor made. But from there then, the donor is uh, transported to a funeral home or uh, going down another path, which is outside of the scope of uh, Donor Network of Arizona's work. But some organ and tissue donors are also whole body donors for research whole different realm, whole different, essentially, industry. But a lot of people register for both. So they will go either to the whole body donation for research agency or the funeral home from there. The transplants take place. And I, I really want people to know that once organ recovery happens and transplantation happens and a life is saved or more than one life and others are healed, we, you know, we don't just wipe our hands and say, okay, family, thanks, good luck. We actually have it done our of Arizona, a an aftercare program for the family members of the donor, for any who wish to participate. That lasts for a minimum of two years, and that includes outcome letters. Like you, you as a medical professional, sometimes get some of those updates. 
but the family members will also get an outcome letter saying, look at what happened after you or your loved one said yes. This person from this state who works this job is now able to breathe again because of a double, double lung transplant. Or this person now can see again because they received one of the two corneas, uh, et cetera. And so from there, we invite them to different events to honor their loved one as a donor because at the end of the day, while our, our clinical side of work is dealing with organs and tissue donations to save lives, this is very much a human endeavor, right? There's uh, pun intended. We, uh, there's heart in what we do. And so we care for the donor families, and we hear from at least the majority of them after donation happens and they learn that they, their loved one saved someone that kind of takes a little bit of the edge of that grief off. And we invite them to come grieve with us. Uh, they, we invite them to create customized Quilt squares that we add to quilts that travel the entire state of Arizona. In fact, almost all of them will be put up, uh, that we do this yearly, at the state capitol in March for what we call Donate Life Day at the capitol. And it's this huge display of, of um, custom-made quilts and quotes and posters with pictures and stories everywhere so that it is at the forefront of Arizona's minds that these people are heroes and we invite you to do the same. Uh, there will be donor family ceremonies and events and volunteer opportunities and uh, recognition lunches and breakfasts. And so we really embrace them for a minimum of two years. And some of them end up staying longer. So a lot of them, in fact, the majority of our Donate Life Arizona volunteers have some connection to organ and tissue donation, whether it be that they're a recipient or they know recipients they are a donor family who said yes or the donor family to someone who previously registered. So it becomes this whole community, and, and we embrace these families because without their generosity, we wouldn't be able to do the work that we do. So I would, I would like to say that's the end. There's never really an end. Like We make friends with these people. They become part of our team, and, and it's really an amazing process. Yeah, I would have to say that I've been able to talk to a few people both for the podcast and just going back and forth with messaging who uh, are organ recipients. And a big theme that I see with, I would say pretty much every single one of them is that they love to share their story because to them, you know, it's a way of honoring that person who made that choice. And they always tell me they feel like, you know, they, they do get that second chance at life. Some of them have received a couple of different, organ transplants, various points of their life. So they've had a second, third shot at life. And so they are very much about telling their story and working within their local donate life or at least something to that effect with getting the word out because it has literally saved their life once, sometimes twice or more over. And that to me is amazing because I only see one part, I would say, of this process. And then, you know, like I said, I've, I've gotten a couple of the letters. And so I don't necessarily see the other side of things. I don't have that direct interaction with the people who have received those um, donations, those organ and tissue donations. But when I talk to these people, it's like, wow, to me, it just, I know that it's important to do. Um, I know that, you know, if I'm able to, I definitely want my organs and tissues going to whoever needs it, but you don't know afterwards necessarily what happens. So to talk to people who have received the gift of life has made me realize like when that time comes for me personally, it's, 
it's going to be helpful to that person more than I could ever imagine. And it's really interesting too, because you know, you have living donors out there as well. You have people who are on the bone marrow registry, which as a side note, I definitely encourage people to check that out and consider becoming a bone marrow donor as well, um, or at least joining the registry. You have blood donors who are out there. You have people who have donated uh, part of a kidney train. You have people who have donated parts of their liver. You had people who've done um, sort of transplants with fecal sort of things, which helps people change their lives there in terms of um, some of the other things that go on with antibiotics and C. diff. There's so many things that we can do in this life to help people, but to touch people, hundreds of people, I don't know. It just, to me, I'm always like struck by just how, how much you can do, like the ripple effect that can go a long way beyond your time on this earth. So it just, it always strikes me and I get a little bit emotional about it, thinking about it, but there is a legal side of things that I didn't actually, I wasn't too aware of until I started traveling and we get uh, presentations because each state is different, which you did touch upon. And I know down here in the Southeast, they talked about uh, one of the legal aspects that by law, if a person chooses to be an organ donor and they are in a state where, you know, they can no longer make their decisions, they, they're not conscious, they're comatose, they're brain dead. If that power of attorney steps in and says, I don't want this person to be an organ donor, they actually cannot revoke that status that that person made, at least down here in some of the states in the Southeast. So I don't know if that's actually like that in Arizona. And that was actually, I'll be honest, that was the first time I've heard about that law protecting a person decision to be an organ donor, because it is an incredibly hard decision to make or to be approached about when you're trying to also grapple with the fact that there's a loss of life, especially if it's somebody that has been declared brain dead. And it's like, you're seeing this person attached to machines and they're alive in this moment, but what do you mean that they're not alive? So it's a lot for a person to wrap their mind around. And now there's people asking me about organ donation and and I don't want that, but at least down here, they said that you cannot revoke it. And I don't know, is it like that in Arizona? It is. Part of our marketing strategy, when people register, we ask them Make sure you share your decision with your friends and family. One, because it may encourage more people to register, which is what we need to save more lives. But it's a, it's a really awful moment to have such a surprise if by any chance there's family members who may be against organ donation or don't understand it, and they're already in a moment of really deep grief. So the law protects that decision. Um, you, In fact, you can get a document of gifts saying, no, I do not want to be an organ donor, and we will accept that as legally binding as saying yes to organ donation. So it, it does kind of get a little bit contentious, if you will, if the family is kind of surprised by that fact. Um, but because of the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, it defines a person's registry status as a legally binding decision uh, starting at the time of their death, and then, no, it cannot be revoked or changed by anyone other than the registrant while they are still alive. And as I mentioned, it's much like any other end-of-life decision. And so the law is very clear. And at the end of the day, the the point of that law, while sometimes it gets uh, challenging, it's to give a voice to the donor who at this time, in a hypothetical donation situation, they're no longer here, but they already stated their decision. I always tell people, and I always encourage people on all my social medias to to have the talk and have the discussion about end-of-life issues now 
while you're able to, while you're healthy, while you're surrounded by people who you trust with that decision to respect that decision that you make and then get it written down, have it legally binding and talk about it more than once. Honestly, things change within our lives and it's okay if you say, you know what, I don't feel comfortable with donating my organs or like we said before, you know, you can go on to the registry and it has choices you can indicate for whether or not you have a preference for what you would prefer to be donated. And there is, there's a lot of things you can sort of tailor, you know, you can figure out what, what you would like and it's okay. You know, you don't necessarily have to feel like, Oh, I'm so locked into this. And no, you're not locked into it by any means. If things change in your life, you just need to know that there are the resources are out there. Contact your local donate life and talk with them. They're not necessarily going to quote unquote, talk you out of becoming a donor. They're going to respect your decision. Regardless, they will give you the accurate information, which I am hoping people take away from this discussion is that there's a lot of misinformation surrounding organ donation. And I, I hope that some, I really do. I really hope that some of this discussion has answered some people's questions. And if you're, you know, if you, if you don't want to donate, that's totally fine. I respect that. Everybody's an autonomous, independent human, and you can make your own choices. But I just encourage people, and I'm going to post a lot of the links in the show notes to take the time to really read about organ donation. Listen to the episodes, the two episodes before this one was released, talking with people who have received organ donations and seriously consider it. Talk to, you can talk to me about it. You can reach out to your local donate life organizations and, and talk to them about it. If you're really just like, I just have some lingering questions. That's okay. I mean, this is a big decision to make. It's an end of life decision. Well, one way I like to describe it is that the decision is easy to make. Right. In terms of you check a box and it's done, but the implications are huge. So I do understand why some people have some hesitations. And as you mentioned, they can also reach out to Donor Network of Arizona and share information. When people do call for removals, it's part of our process to ask if they don't mind sharing the reason that they want to be removed and if they have any questions. That way we can, that's another opportunity to educate the public about well, what you're hearing may not be accurate. Do you still want to be removed? And sometimes the answer still is yes, even when we give them information, that's fine. We're not here to strong arm anybody into anything because at the end of the day, you use the, the perfect word, I think, uh, uh, autonomy, right? You have the power to make the decision for yourself, and no matter what that decision is, the law requires uh, that we honor that, and we're okay with that. Uh, and I just wanted to put a period on that last sentence that we were, we were mentioning about how it's legally binding, because sometimes... Uh, there will be families or questions come up about having uh, an advanced directive. An example of that would be like a medical power of attorney. And, and can that override uh, donor regist- uh, registration? Uh, the answer is yes, that a power of attorney could override someone's registry status if um, it has specific language regarding organ tissue donation decisions. But if it doesn't, even a medical power of attorney would not override someone's registry status. So it is very legally binding. It is a very serious decision to make. And so you're absolutely right. It's certainly something worth thinking about and making the right decision for yourself. What are, what's the one thing, maybe a couple of things that, um, you, you want people to know 
just about organ donation, tissue donation, um, to kind of just like fill out our little discussion here? Uh, two things. One, we kind of scratch the surface. The first one, though, yeah, we get a lot of uh, concerns about people not knowing if their religion is supportive, uh, when the reality is there is no major religion that is against organ donation. In fact, most of them are in support of organ donation as kind of, you know, like the greatest show of love for your neighbor or for your fellow man. In fact, we have uh, marketing material to two different uh, Catholic folks who support it. Um, and some people, for example, uh, and with great respect, I know that, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, at least uh, traditional Jehovah's Witnesses are not allowed to receive blood transfusions. But while we respect that, organ transplant can still happen because we can flush, uh, without getting graphic, we can flush the blood of the donor out and it would be a, basically a synthetic fluid um, going through the organ to keep it viable. And that way there's no blood transfer from uh, transplant from donor to recipient. So, we, you know, there's these special circumstances that require these things, but even if someone were Jehovah's Witness, they still can, under their church's rules, receive a transplant or be a donor. But at the end of the day, if it comes down to culture or religion, uh, we want to be respectful to that. You know, that's not something that we're trying to also talk anybody out of. So we typically invite them to go back to their church, their mosque, their temple, wherever they worship, and ask their leaders what they think about it, and from there they can make a decision. Uh, but, uh, you know, kind of uh, umbrellaing over religion, you know, there's no major religion that is against it. So we really hope people consider that when they make their decision. Um, but the one that I was mentioning that we kind of scratched the surface on, particularly thanks to Hollywood, well, you know, I like movies and television too, I get it, you know, when it's suspenseful and compelling, that drives us to watch movies and, and television. Doctors will not let you die just because you're a registered organ donor. And there's no, there's, I have to just be that direct. There's no like nice way to put it. It's a huge fear. We hear it from all cultures, all people, all ages. I've heard it from people from different countries. And it's this huge kind of like scary, like dark cloud over organ donation. When people think if I have the heart of my D, they're not going to try as hard to save my life. And there's a number of ways that we can answer that. I could talk a whole hour about it if you if you wanted. We'll have to do a follow up on that because I feel like I've been wanting to do something about like Hollywood myths versus like healthcare facts. <laughs> like, what does Hollywood get right? What does Hollywood get wrong? So I think I think I'm gonna have to reach out to you again in the future because that is definitely one that I was just watching an old episode of uh, ER, and I don't think it was written in the way that it was supposed to be, but they were doing a code and somebody found his ID and was like, Oh, he's an organ donor. And they like stopped for a second. I was like, Oh, please don't do what I think you're going to do. Don't do it. And they were like, Oh, okay. And they kept going on with the code. I, I think if I remember the scene correctly, but I had this moment where I was like, please don't do what I was going to do. <laughs> but I thought you're going to do where you're just like, Oh, well, we'll stop doing it. Like, no. Right. And it, it starts with even the most simple detail. It's that a physician in a hospital that is the one to declare brain death and depending on hospital policy, uh, multiple physicians are involved in declaring brain death. Those same physicians are in no way connected to any other part of the organ donation for transplantation process. They're not involved in recovery. They don't have transplant patients waiting. It's completely segmented uh, every step of the way so that we can really control any allure or illusion of uh, conflict of interest. Because the, the doctor who's declaring brain death doesn't want to declare brain death so that they can harvest organs. Right, because in that case it would be because it would be an awful situation. Organ recovery happens after someone's life ends because every 
uh, possible life-saving measure has already happened. And, you know, medical professionals have to be responsible and eventually say, this is not going to work. So what are the next steps? And then donation becomes a possibility. But before that, no, save the life of the patient in front of you. That, that's a, I don't have it memorized, but that's essentially kind of a, the, the summary of what the Hippocratic Oath for Physicians is, right? Do right by the patient. Save that person first. Be responsible. And medical professionals take that really seriously. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think I've talked about it before, but during a code and everything, we literally exhaust every resource. We're doing everything that we can. Uh, a lot of times the doctors, they will... During some of the other stuff, you know, we're looking to see if people are responding to treatments, if they're responding to interventions, and if they're not, okay, let's course correct and figure out what we can do next. I have worked on people, I've worked codes that have gone on for hours um, because you just don't want to, you don't want to terminate efforts um, because that's, that is somebody's loved one that is here in your room and is present. And that is somebody, that is a person, that is a human. And people don't, People don't come to the hospital to die. They come to the hospital to be helped. And that's what we are supposed to be doing. That's what we do. And if you don't do that in the hospital, then something else is going on with that person. But, you know, that's our our main objective is to help people. And if we cannot help a person, we need to make them comfortable. um, And we need to make sure that their family is taken care of. And that's a lot of what goes into um, palliative care. And that's a whole nother you know, avenue of uh, healthcare, but that is still healthcare. So I do want people to realize that as well. And I couldn't agree with you more about how, you know, I've only worked with doctors that have been geared towards doing no harm for their patients. I've never worked in my whole entire healthcare career. I've never worked with a doctor who has not had that in mind. Sometimes in the ER, you get a little heated with some things, but at the end of the day, it comes down to taking care of your patients first and foremost and doing no harm and doing what's right by them. Um, and that includes respecting their end-of-life wishes and their wishes in terms of organ donation as well. Absolutely. And uh, on that note, eventually we're all going to pass away. And so we know, uh, based on um, you know market research, that more than 90% of uh, people living in the U.S. support the concept of organ donation, but only a little bit more than half of the adult population in Arizona actually have said yes. So there's a disconnect there, and we're working to bridge that gap. And maybe because of fears such as, oh, the doctor's not going to take care of me, or my religion, or, you know, there's a, a number of myths and misconceptions out there. But knowing that there's so much support for it, but to get someone to say yes, that's what we're working on. So if you're listening to this today and you live in Arizona, uh, you can go to donatelifeaz.org to register. If you're outside of the state, you can go to registerme.org, and it will take you to your state's organ and tissue donation registry, even if you go there just to learn more or go there to say yes. Uh, we would love to have more people say yes to the gift of life because truly, truly generosity transforms the world. And, you know, one person may receive a kidney. What about that person and their spouse, that person and their kids or parents or friends or coworkers? So it is a massive ripple effect uh, when you just say yes. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much for joining me, Nico. Oh, no, my God. It's a pleasure anytime. And if in the future you want to kind of dive into more about the doctors and the ICU process and why that's not true, it is a myth. They will take care of you. We'd love to do that in the future. Uh, but we really appreciate you giving us the opportunity to kind of talk, at least from Arizona's perspective, about how this all works and, and what it means to us. I just wanted to leave you with one last uh, fun fact, a wild fact, if you will, since people are wild. Uh, you mentioned that. 
We've done the math, and it only takes 38 seconds to register on all the platforms, even by paper. We've done the math. So your listeners, ask yourselves, what can you make possible in 38 seconds? Ooh, I like that. I think that's the title of this episode. What can you make possible in 38 seconds? There you go. My sincerest thanks and gratitude goes out to Nico Santos for joining me in doing this interview and hopefully helping to dispel a little bit of that fog that is surrounding organ donation and tissue donation. Now, I encourage you to reach out to your local chapter of Donate Life to look at all the facts that have been listed, uh, all the links, I should say, that have been listed in the show notes regarding transplants and the process of organ donation and perhaps that'll help. Maybe listening to this podcast helps. I hope in some way you are thinking about organ donation in a new mindset, in a new sort of framework, if you've had some hesitancy before. Now, I have had just such an outpouring of people sharing their stories and their journeys regarding being a living donor, receiving bone marrow transplants, receiving tissue donations. When I put out that blurb that tweet asking for people to help me out with doing this the response was overwhelmingly positive and overwhelming in general and i couldn't get to everybody but i have a lot of people who want to share their stories and i want to do something with that so i have in my mind a little bit of a framework a little bit of game plan going forward it's not all the way finalized But if you would like to be part of this sort of game plan I have in my whirly-twirly wonderful brain of mine, go ahead and reach out to me. Email me, peoplearewildpod at gmail.com. I want to get as many stories as I can, either recording with you or just sharing your stories and allowing me to tell it or narrate it. Whatever works for you, let's figure out something. I believe people need to hear more from people who are on all sides of organ donation, tissue donation, living donors, people who have received transplants and everywhere and the in-between. And it's just something that is so crucial to think about going forward with our lives is that everyone dies, but your organs can give somebody a second chance. So I just hope that people take that away from these past three episodes And maybe just as a bit of a general announcement, I'm not quite sure when the next new episode is going to be coming out. I have some things that I'm working on professionally, all good, all exciting. Um, Some of them revolve around me studying. So in order to do that, I need to take a little bit more of a step back so I can focus in on what I need to do in order to be a better nurse and to finally get some, you know, more alphabet soup behind my name. So wish me luck going into that next month. And don't worry, there are some projects that I have that I'm starting to do preliminary work on. I'm starting to reach out to people to help me on and collaborate with. So there are things and topics that I want to do, but I always love to hear from you guys. So again, email me, peoplearewild at gmail. Wait, that's not the address. It's peoplearewildpod at gmail.com. And then you can always reach out to me on social media. I only have one place on social media. That is Twitter. And the handle is peoplearewild. So reach out to me on any of those platforms. If you have topic suggestions, if you want to share your stories, if you want to know what's going on in terms of what I'm thinking of doing for the organ donation aspect, or if you just want to say hi, go for it. And as always, believe in the good practice random acts of kindness, and what can you do in 38 seconds?